zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Gas, released July 24th, 1981. Gas was released. <laughs> it was written by Dick Wolf, based on a story by Wolf and Susan Scranton. But the Dick Wolf? The Dick Wolf. Oh my god. Directed by Les Rose and released by Paramount Pictures. You gotta insert the... Uh... Law and order. Doink, doink. No, I think we'd owe a lot of money if I did that. You could just create one of your own, Richard. We could use that. Doink, doink. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> just put a lot of echo on it. Well, and what do done. you call it? Bum, bum. That sounded more like the Netflix one. Uh, okay. Too much reverb. Well, didn't they put an onomatopoeia to that? that That's what I'm like, saying. The name of their annual presentation for netflix is called the bumba or something like that i can't remember they named it after the sound their logo makes according to them just google netflix presentation done 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 that's what they're calling it stupid yeah i was gonna say that no matter what it was called though (laughs) see but this one says this other article says doink 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 wait for law and order or for the law and order sound colon the doink 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 doink. doink doink but that sounds like a spring like yeah. that's like a like that's comical. way too bouncy <laughs> i guess it's not boing uh, this one says chung chung this film <laughs> <clears throat> exists only on vhs for the home video market or youtube if you like me haven't had a vcr in a decade uh we have one it's in the closet <laughs> oh do we yeah. oh yeah because we thought we might need it for the show when i was going to pay 120 dollars for a vhs of why would I lie? <laughs> and I offered to pay for the uh, Betamax to get the uh, black marble. <laughs> so we could watch well, it on I just beta. waited and a nice Blu-ray came out. The film starts with a station ID for WGAZ, which, as best I can tell, is a radio station devoted entirely to talking about gas prices. Their full-time DJ, the bopper in the chopper, Nick the Nozzle, wastes what must be a significant quantity of their titular motion <laughs> lotion by spending his entire shift in a helicopter above a local gas station. Is he also piloting the helicopter? I think so. Well, he's alone in there, I would imagine. (laughs) Motion Lotion, by the way, is their cool nickname for gasoline. Or uncomfortable nickname. (laughs) Nozzle speaks in cheesy gasoline-themed code and is played by Donald Sutherland from last week's Eye of the Needle, released the same day in theaters. Day 22 of your very own, very local gas crisis. Wow! As you ground-bound Earthlings fight it out in the duel for fuel, WGAZ, the gas station. Stay tuned. Going to tell you where the lines are shortest. Going to give you all the stats on the pump parade. Stay with me, Earthman, for the next 12 hours. Because Nas is going to use his motion lotion to save yours. Coming at you. Out of the ozone. WGAZ, the gas station, pumping out the best in rock and roll. It's clear that the inserts of Sutherland were shot in a stationary helicopter and make up the entirety of his appearance in the film. So he couldn't have spent more than a day on set. Yeah, but it shows in the movie. Right. And he's admitted in interviews that he did this film because he was completely broke at the time. Which is crazy. And I feel like 
he did that again towards the end of the 80s where it was like you made a bunch of money you finally did some good movies again and then suddenly yeah. you were broke again it's like what happened like what ha- what were money managers doing yeah, what happened to all that ordinary people money yeah it seems weird that the radio station is so obsessed with gasoline that they call themselves wgaz and are called the gas station and yet nozzle is an anti-car protester like the whole time he's talking about how terrible traffic is Literally, the whole point of this radio station is to tell you where lines to buy gas are the shortest or prices are the cheapest. Insanely, Nick the Nozzle is able to plug an 8-track into a deck in the helicopter and broadcast music without a radio tower. Like, it's just playing on the radio. Yeah. Like, he's actually performing the DJ functions in addition to just being, like, a commentator and a helicopter pilot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is like pirate radio, but he's not in international airspace. But every time we see an insert of the tape he's putting in, it's the same tape, and it just says Bopper Chopper on it. So he's literally, they might even just be reusing the same insert of him pushing a tape in and hitting play. He flies low over the West Star Station with lines around the block. There's also a 12-foot statue of a cowboy out front. Someone flips a switch and the gasoline nozzle in the cowboy's hand starts to flow like a fountain. The lines are so bad that people are getting out of their cars and walking around in the local neighborhood. Women are sunbathing on the hoods of their cars. People are shaving in the driver's seat. A mime juggles oranges while stuffing a banana into his face. A married couple have passed out and are sleeping in their car, still in their tuxedo and wedding dress. It's like they invited 100 people to this set and just said, quick, do something. Right, exactly. One man has turned the back of his car into a barbecue and sells burgers to the crowd. Ira, Westar's lead mechanic, approaches the crowd to let them know the pumps will be open soon. I recognized Keith Knight here playing Ira from his turn as Hollis in My Bloody Valentine earlier this season. My question is, why aren't the pumps open now? I don't know. Maybe it's just the time at which the gas station opens and there's just been a line that people have been waiting in until they open. Mm. Presumably all night for like in the in the case of the, the wedding. Yeah. Because they, it's not like mm-hmm. they got they just married. just fell asleep. Yeah, they didn't get married at seven in the morning. That's true. Yeah. Maybe they did though. The crowd is annoyed that the station isn't open yet and start throwing things at Ira and we cut away to Peter Aykroyd as Ed Marshall doing some weird Tai Chi moves in his living room. Is his last name Marshall? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. Okay. I got it covered. He starts chopping boards in half and hurts his hand. His sister, Sarah, yes, Sarah Marshall, like forgetting Sarah Marshall, comes in to check on him, and to impress her, he switches to smashing boards with his head. He complains that she's not wearing enough clothes as she leaves the house, but she hasn't even put on pants yet. It's made very clear in this scene that Ed has the hots for his sister, Sarah. It's... This is so bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's not like a stepsister. It's not a cousin. No. It's literally just his sister, and he's obsessed with her. And it's not, like, incidental. Like, it's no. a main plot point. Right. Yeah. There are over two and a half million men in this city, and 98% of them are horny. He reads this line while checking out her ass as she bends over to pull her pants up. The character he's doing here reminds me of Nat Faxon, just in terms of his facial expressions. Mm. He continues flailing around with his loose interpretation of martial arts, punching holes in the walls of their house. Right as his sister's about to finish pulling her pants up, he kicks a lamp off a side table, and she lets her pants fall to the ground again around her ankles. Then she shuffles across the room like that to put a replacement lamp on the table, and he kicks that one to pieces too. This time, it's Ed's turn to replace the lamp with their last spare lamp. He is mostly frustrated that she's turning down his bodyguard services. She tells him that he wears everybody out. Besides, people don't act normal when you're around. 
That kind of attitude ticks me off. Think I'm no good. What good? The phone rings, and as Sarah enters a room to answer it, her brother tries to jump kick the door closed on her. Somehow, the force of her opening the door is strong enough to throw him backward across the room where he lands in a chair that slides another five feet before dumping him backward through a curtain of beaded strings. I don't understand what's happening. It, it actually doesn't even matter, though. I, I get the impression they're just making up a lot of this stuff on the set, like, what would be funny? What if we did this? Okay, now what if we did this? And they're just trying to jam-pack it, and it's just overflowing with nonsense. No, there's no way this was in a script. We get another transition moment with Nick the Nozzle doing his dumbass rhymes. It's half past eight and you're late, but don't speed. There's no need, Earthman. Just tell the time clock. The Noz said, slow down. Haste makes waste. Make the gas last for your futures, your past. It's impressive when you can be in a movie with Howie Mandel and be the most annoying part of it. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, we waste this transition, though, because we cut right back to Ed and Sarah's living room, where she is fanning him with her shirt to wake him up because he's unconscious from his fall. I was meditating. Oh, shit, you were not cold. I was meditating. She tells him he's going to hurt himself with this kung fu bullshit, and he invites her to kick him anywhere. After some hesitation, she nails him hard in the crotch, and the face he's making is actually legitimately funny, because he's just grinning and trying to pretend it didn't hurt. And now this performance reminds me of Will Arnett for some reason. Mm. Think that hurt me, didn't ya? Well, it didn't. Apparently, Sarah is a model, and she leaves for an all-day photo session. But, but she's not a model. She's a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> she just takes pictures of random shit that she finds. Ed waits until she leaves to react to the pain, and we cut right from him groaning to a woman in short shorts soliciting drivers waiting for the gas station to open. She invites one to have sex with her in a van while her friend moves his car to the pumps as soon as they're open. We cut to Howie Mandel on a car phone talking business. You sold me 25,000 rectal thermometers. Where am I supposed to put 25,000 rectal? Very funny. We cut back to the cowboy statue outside the gas station and we hear the voice of the man it is styled after. Duke Stuyvesant don't take shit from nobody. I don't want excuses, I want results. We cut to what looks like a commercial for the gas station, mostly because Sterling Hayden as Duke Stuyvesant is talking directly into the camera. It turns out he's not looking into the camera. He's telling us his life story while he plays a video game that features live action footage. The point of the game seems to be to shoot other cowboys in cowboy duels. And this is a real game from 1974 called Wild Gunman. Yeah. And it was projected on 16 millimeter film, the way you play the game. Really? Yeah. That's so weird. Apparently it was a Nintendo arcade game. Huh. He's actually not even telling us the story. He's telling it to his two sons for probably the 100th time because they're mouthing along to all the words. When Duke ultimately loses the shooting game, he whips out a real gun and shoots a bunch of holes in the projector screen he was playing on. You know that old, that old saying, it don't matter whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Somehow this kills the fictional character on screen, though. Only the last couple sentences of the scene matter. Duke explains that they are illegally stockpiling gas so they can charge more for it by implying a shortage. We cut from here to a pair of fancy shoes coming down the stairs at a pet mortuary. The Vespucci brothers walk a client into their offices. We get the first instance of a running gag where Nino Vespucci will say some words and his brother Guido will slap him, causing a tape rewind sound, and then Nino will say the phrase again, but in a way that satisfies his brother. The the first time he says it, he says it like he's being dubbed. Like his lips aren't matching what he's saying. 
Is that true? Yeah, it, it it's almost as if he's speaking Italian, but you're hearing English. I couldn't tell what they were trying to imply. And we realize that whatever we say may sound a little hollow. Grazie. A little hollow. Maybe it's that he's being ADR'd, and I just couldn't tell because 90% of this movie is ADR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To the point that literally a third of the credits, which are people that I didn't even include in my notes, are just voice actors who are yeah. literally just adding jokes to a scene that was already overcrowded with nonsense. Well, I hope maybe, you added a few of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe this guy was just so bad that they had to add this joke to compensate for his inability to do what he needed Yeah, he's to do. literally just fucking up the line, and yeah. so they had the actor slap him in the face every time he screwed up. Yeah. It's a speech impediment he's had it since childhood. The customer hands over her dead canary in a bag. They try to upsell her on oil paintings or taxidermy. They can even turn your beloved pet into a toaster or a lighter, but she's looking for something more traditional. We also have a complete line of canary caskets. Yes. Yes. I only want the best. They tuck her pet Ralph, the canary, into a simple casket, and Nino calculates the price on a taxidermied squirrel calculator. One hundred and a half. Sold. They snap the casket shut and use scissors to clip Ralph's tail where it hangs out of the box. It sounds funny. Yeah. You know, doesn't this, this whole setup sound really funny? But when you're watching it, it's not funny. No, it's not. It's just uncomfortable. Yeah. Bizarrely, she doesn't expect to take the casket she just bought home or the canary inside. She entrusts the Vespucci brothers to bury Ralph somewhere sunny. As Guido walks her out of the offices, Nino tosses the bird into a toilet so they can resell the casket. Ralphie has his revenge, though, by clogging up the toilet and causing it to overflow and flood the bathroom. We cut back to the prostitute, Rhonda, at the gas line, who complains that nobody is engaging in her services anymore. Back at the pet mortuary, Guido notices the bathroom is flooded. I like to think this is the exact scene that inspired Nintendo to choose a pair of Italian plumbers as their flagship <laughs> character. <laughs> Guido, I'm not a plumber! Oh, no! Oh. They try the plunger for maybe a second, and then Guido advises Nino to use his head, and then shoves his head into the toilet. The IMDb trivia for this movie is mostly useless, but in the spoiler section of the trivia, someone thought it was worth mentioning that the use-your-head joke reoccurs in Toy Story 2, <laughs> where they use Rex's head to bust open the ventilation shaft from the inside. What are we gonna do, Buzz? Use your head. But I don't want to use my hand! Like, yes, I'm sure that was a reference right, to this. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I thought it would be that some people call the toilet the head. Maybe. Guido takes off his jacket and throws it over the camera to black out the scene, and we cut to the Vespucci brothers descending into their building basement to shut off the water at the source. A spigot breaks off of a pipe, and they start a new leak in the basement. Luckily, Guido knows of a third option, and he opens a panel in the floor to shut off the water with a monkey wrench. When the water finally stops, Guido thinks he smells something else in this panel under the floor. He notices a pipe stamped with the words West Star Oil Company Incorporated. Presumably, this is the pipeline that Duke Stuyvesant is using to siphon gas to a covert storage facility. We cut right to Duke driving a car with a hawk on his hand. Do you remember the last time somebody was driving with a uh, bird of prey in their vehicle? The visitor? <laughs> yeah. that, that's what I had yet. <laughs> he arrives outside a massive reservoir to find his sons fighting over a blowtorch. They tell their father they noticed a seam in the container and they came out to weld it shut. As the father and sons discuss their plan, Igor the hawk 
is suddenly startled out of Duke's hand and flies up into the sky just as Nick the Nozzle from WGAZ passes overhead and the propeller chops up the poor bird. A handful of feathers are dropped in slow motion on the father and sons below. I hate it when that happens. Man against nature. Popper chopper one, hawk zero. Duke tells his children that Igor was much more than a pet, he was a friend, and bizarrely on a cut, Sterling Hayden has decided to poke one of the bird feathers through his beard as though it landed there naturally. Sarah Marshall pulls up on a Vespa with three cameras around her neck. When she notices Duke and Sons arguing by the reservoir, she snaps a few photos. The brothers notice her doing it and wave to be friendly, but only Duke realizes this could be bad news. What the hell are you two gawking at? There's a girl over oh, there. Oh, there's a girl over there, so? She's taking our picture with a camera. Camera? Hi there! Hello. Hi, sweetie. Well, we go after her. Oh, you jackasses. Sarah turns her Vespa around to leave, and the brothers follow her away. We cut to Sarah arriving at West Star Gas Station to a chorus of cat calls. The brothers skid right up behind her and grab at her, successfully taking one of the three cameras. Howie Mandel's Matt Lloyd character notices this happening and races over the tops of several cars to rescue her. When Matt wrenches her arm free, the brothers speed off down the sidewalk to get around the traffic blocking the street. Sarah asks Matt if he's okay and he pretends his neck hurts because she's holding him against her boobs for a while, but then admits exactly why he's pretending. He repeatedly invites her to dinner and eventually she relents. As the camera pulls away from them, we reveal a crowd of maybe 30 people applauding the successful pickup line, and I actually got a slight chuckle out of this, I'm embarrassed to say, that all these people were suddenly there to applaud the moment. Yeah. Matt bows for them. Ira comes out of the gas station to see what all the fuss is, and Matt mentions a small problem with a camera. Unfortunately, the nearest driver only hears the word problem and assumes the gas station is out of order. It's quickly passed around between the waiting customers, and they all give up on the station simultaneously. Ira tries to talk each driver into staying as they pass, but it's no use. Even Nick the Nozzle is misled by the departing caravan of customers. Bad news if you're looking for gas near Mulberry Earth, man, because the West Star station there just ran out of the juke juke. Whoop, too bad. We get a pointless little detail that Matt works for an attorney's office, where he's entrusted with topping off their cars every day. Here's where I officially start to lose the thread of the film. Believe it or not, it took this long. We cut to a parking garage where a man is carrying another reluctant man over his shoulder. The reluctant man seems terrified to ride in the passenger seat, preferring instead to call a taxi. The car this man is placed in is labeled WREQ Mobile Unit. I think that means this is a car for a different radio station in the same area. It's actually a television station. Right. Either way, there is more than one of these mobile unit vehicles, so for some reason WREQ has a fleet of at least three business cars. A woman follows them down the stairs, I think a reporter, who out of nowhere has a feeling that a big story is about to break. She's even certain that it involves Duke Stuyvesant somehow. Her boss tells her that Duke is off limits. Forget it. Weststar's the station's third largest advertiser. Are you interested in truth or money? Money. Especially the money I pay you. Instead, he diverts her attention to an ugly dog contest being held by the ASPCA in a nearby park. The man who the editor plopped into her passenger seat is Asian-American, but he's being dubbed over in an even more obnoxious Asian-American stereotype voice for the entire film. Yeah. And remember, it is my life you are playing with, white goddess. And the joke of this character is that he calls her white goddess over and over again. Almost all of his lines are just the words white goddess, and that's supposed to be funny enough. Yeah. I, I also don't understand that their mobile units have the 
same rights as an emergency vehicle. Right. They have lights and everything. We cut to the station car peeling out onto the street and doing donuts in an intersection for no reason. She's driving the car the wrong way down the street at an insanely high speed and nearly clips several other cars and bicyclists. The bopper and the chopper flies over the Westar oil complex and needlessly tells us that Duke Stuyvesant denies any responsibility for the gas shortage. I say needlessly because we cut right to a press conference at the same oil complex and he makes the exact same comment to the press. So I'm going to tell you right now, the main thing is the Westar oil ain't got nothing to do with this gasoline shortage. Duke tells the reporters that Nick the Nozzle is to blame because he announced the shortage before it even happened, so everybody bought up all the gas in a panic, which led to an actual shortage. Suddenly, Duke's sons crash the press conference to announce to their father that they've successfully stolen the camera from the photographer earlier. He tells the boys to shut up while photographers take a flurry of pictures. We cut to Duke's home office later, and his sons are cracking up because the camera didn't have any film in it, so they assume the woman forgot to even load the camera. Duke points out that it's entirely possible the photographer removed the film from the camera after taking the pictures, and the brothers also mention that she was actually carrying three cameras and they only took one. So this one camera being empty is starting to mean less than nothing. Luckily for them, though, the camera has her name and address on the bottom. Or does it? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Mitchell, 212 Norton Street. Now, whole ass! Uh, okay, oh! don't worry about it, Daddy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't I joke earlier that her name was Sarah Marshall and not Sarah Mitchell? <laughs> yes, I did. Did I screw up or did the filmmakers forget what they named their own character? Well, the credits on IMDb and at the end of the film say Sarah Marshall. So this is just a straight fuck up and nobody cared enough to learn the character's name before labeling a prop. It probably belonged to Sarah Mitchell. Yeah, they like stole the it. Well, the, uh, <laughs> wait, that's a real address then. <laughs> that's fine. Duke sends his sons to Sarah's address, and we cut to a sheik in a car. The insanely common stereotype of a sheik driving around in the town. Can you guys recall all the sheiks we've seen so far on the show? All of them? I only have five, and one of them's kind of cheating. Baltimore Bullet? No, he was not a sheik. He was not a sheik? Underground Aces. Underground Aces is one. That's a good one. Um, uh, Uh, Cannibal Run? Cannibal Run, yeah. Cannibal Run is one. one. Yeah. Lion of the Desert? That was the cheater one. Uh. <laughs> There's two more that are straight up sheiks, though. Okay. <laughs> the Omar Sharif character from Baltimore Bullet was called the Deacon. Oh, the Deacon. Do you need some clues? Yeah, give me a clue. One of the movies has a lot of kids in it. Oh, um, On the Right Track? No. No, that's got a lot of kids. Slightly older kids. Slightly Bust and Loose? Oh, the, the cross-country... The Mad Magazine movie. Mad Magazine movie. Oh, Up the Academy? Up the Academy. Was that this year? No, I'm saying on the podcast. Oh, that's some reason I was thinking this year. Okay, oh, yeah, no. Up the Academy, sure. And then there's one more who picks up a girl off a street in New York. Oh, and then she shoots him. Yeah, she does. Um, What movie was that? Miss what? 45? There you go, there you Miss go. 45, a lady who shoots people. <laughs> In New York. <laughs> we cut to the back seat of a luxury car where he reads a book about how to talk to women while speaking in innuendos to someone on his car phone until she hangs up. His driver tells him they need to stop for gas. Nozzle Nick says some more dumb stuff in his helicopter. The chic driver pulls into the gas station from the wrong direction to try to cut off the line of waiting customers. Ira points him to the end of the line and the chic leans out of the car to explain who his father is and why he deserves gas first. 
this goes along with the whole Sheik trope that we've seen so far. Like when Jamie Farr, as the Sheik in Cannonball Run, threatened to buy the state of California to get out of a speeding ticket. I am son of Zala Ibn Zala, who is a very cool guy. I don't care if you're the son of Sam. You want petrol, you take this car to the end of the line. Yes, sir, behead him! Master, it's America. I, I, then I, run I, him over! Petrol, huh? This is it, America. Yeah. The Sheik orders his driver to murder Ira, but instead the driver waves around his green card and leaves to get a job somewhere else. The Sheik doesn't know how to drive his car, but tries anyway and immediately crashes it into another parked customer. We cut back to Ed destroying things in the apartment he shares with his sister Sarah. The phone rings and someone is calling to speak with Sarah, but Ed intercepts, demanding an in-person interview and paperwork before anyone can date his hot sister. As he explains all the red tape involved, he slowly spins, wrapping himself in the phone cord. Sarah finally enters to take the call, and Ed collapses to the floor, wrapped in wire. She hangs up the phone as hard as she can on the receiver in his lap, and then asks him to zip her top up. Instead of using his hands, he pulls the zipper up with his teeth, and then licks the length of her dress across her back. What, all siblings don't do that? They do, but you don't film it. You don't film it. <laughs> don't film it. Okay, got it. We cut directly outside, and somehow her gentleman caller, Matt Lloyd, is already here to pick her up. She compliments his car, and he doesn't admit that it's not his. Because that's a hilarious joke. But that's the end of those jokes. There's no more mention of the fact that these aren't his cars. Yep. And everything else he says is very funny. Yes. That's very funny. He tells her that he's a salesman, but the only two products he mentions specifically are rectal thermometers and handbags. But by handbags, he's literally selling giant bags in the shape of a huge white hamburger helper glove. Coincidentally, the brothers who took her camera roll by in their car. Matt points out that they probably want one of the photos she took, and they make a plan to develop her pictures after dinner. We cut to a nearby military base where a major assures a local reporter that there's enough gas here and their huge tanks to provide for any emergency. After the interview has wrapped, reporter Jane Beardsley turns around to collect her things and her cameraman gets a long shot of her butt. After the reporter and cameraman have left the building, a couple MPs hatch a plan to steal and sell the base's gas for a huge profit thanks to the current gas prices. Do you remember the last time some MPs stole military equipment? (laughs) Stripes? That's got to be, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was that was pretty loose. <laughs> Where is my truck? <laughs> Where's my truck? Hey! There was probably some gas in it too, right? Yeah, probably. It had to be. <laughs> they didn't push it out of that building. We cut to an alley across town where the same two MPs are selling gas out of a tanker to people on the street. 15 gallons, that's um, 50 bucks. 50 bucks? Nowadays, that sounds like a bargain. Do you recall the last time we saw a movie starring one of the Aykroyd brothers where a woman was ridiculously overcharged for gas? Uh, I'm going to say the Blues Brothers. That's right. That was Twiggy. Okay, you're all set. That'll be uh, $94. One, I should clean the dead bugs off the windshield. (laughs) (laughs) This particular customer offers to pay for the gas with her body, and one of the MPs gets real handsy with her and accidentally pulls off her wig, revealing a surprise. She's a man! Well, picky, picky. Matt's date with Sarah is already going poorly when we notice her brother creeping into the restaurant in a trench coat. He puts on some Groucho Marx glasses to get closer, and we hear a James Bondy sound alike as he sneaks through the place. I'm on my way home. You know how you sit behind the cockpit? They sometimes hang up their coats and their hats and the co-pilot and the pilot. I grab the two uniforms and I said to my friend... Matt tells Sarah a bad joke, And then, laughing at his own punchline, he drops a fist on the table, launching a spoon into her cleavage. 
He offers to retrieve it for her, but she takes it out herself. Their conversation takes a very weird turn. You know something, Sarah? What? A lot of people think I'm a cool guy. That's very funny. I bet a lot of people think you're a real asshole. <laughs> what? A smile creeps across her face. This is me laughing at the absurdity of this movie. Luckily, I'm not a lot of people. Asshole. What? You just said you weren't a lot of people, but you think I'm an asshole? I don't understand. They share a relatively unprovoked kiss, and Brother Ed is so furious, he punches a food cart in half. He leaps into a flying kick over their table and knocks food in another customer's lap. Matt and Sarah don't even notice him because they're too busy making out still. Every waiter trips over every other waiter, and a cart of flaming food is somehow rolled out the door and into the street outside. A bus containing the finalists of the first annual Japanese Elvis Presley lookalike contest swerves to avoid the flaming cart and then plows through the front of the restaurant. Still, Matt and Sarah hear nothing. Dozens of Japanese Elvis impersonators pour out of the bus into the restaurant. Matt and Sarah head back to Sarah's place to develop the film she has. When Ed finally makes it home, he can hear them developing prints from Sarah's negative in a dark room but mistakes their dialogue for something else. Give me your hand. You're holding them too tightly. This one's a slippery one. Is that better? Oh, that's better. I've never done one this big. I'm spreading them. I'm spreading them. It's so slippery. Push it in. Now, before it's too late. How's this? Ed dives headfirst through the door. For the record, none of those phrases are things you would need to use in a darkroom. I think they were fucking while they were developing oh, this Oh, okay. <laughs> had nothing to do yeah. with film. <laughs> yeah, just, just once I would love one of those scenes of innuendo. Yeah. It was like, it's like, oh, weird. it's not going to be what you think. <laughs> oh, no, I guess it was. Yeah. It's like, can you hold this for me? <laughs> it's just like cuts to her holding his dick. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why would you say it like that? Ed dives headfirst through the door, and we cut to the West Star gas station after hours as the Vespucci brothers get out of a hearse with stockings over their heads but fedoras over the stockings. When Ira informs them that they're closed, they kidnap him at gunpoint and toss him into a big plywood coffin. They lock him in the box and push it back into the hearse. Back at their home office, they lead him to the basement to show him the West Star pipe they found. I don't know why they brought him here. I don't know why they're not wearing the stockings now. I don't know why they showed him this pipe. <laughs> you guys have any ideas? No. Nope. He's an employee of the gas station. He obviously didn't install this pipe under their building. But he knows about gas. They're idiots. I don't know. Why were they disguised when they kidnapped him, but not now? When he's been the only person around for the disguises and the no disguise. One of them pulls out a lighter, like he's going to somehow use a blowtorch to destroy this pipe full of gasoline. The brothers and Ira start slapping each other around, and Ira is knocked backwards, where he crashes into a monkey coffin. The coffin pops open, and a taxidermied monkey laughs in his face. <laughs> <laughs> that was chuckles oh he died laughing <laughs> <laughs> nothing in the movie will make any kind of sense moving forward and there's about an hour left we cut back to matt's apartment where he and sarah are suddenly naked in bed together but she's making him wait until johnny carson's monologue is over to have sex but the show's not even on yet yeah and it won't be for another 45 minutes Matt punches his Murphy bed in frustration, and it folds back up into the wall. When it stops, we hear Sarah's voice say, 
This movie feels like it was written by predictive text. They just kept tapping the middle <laughs> word until they had a script-length document. As much as it pains me to admit, the effect of the Murphy bed folding up is actually pretty well done. It looks like they really launched these actors up against a wall practically. Do you guys recall the last time we saw people folded up in a Murphy bed? Yeah, it was in the Muppets movie, the Great Muppet Caper. That's right. What about the time before that? Uh, oh, it was a kid. It was um, uh, Little Miss Marker? It was Little Miss Marker. We cut back to the statue of Duke Stuyvesant outside the West Star gas station. But wait, it's a different West Star gas station. But I think they're using the same location and pretending that it's a new gas station. Like they just like dumped a bunch of trash on it and they were Mm. like, this is an abandoned version of that other gas station you saw. That's only a guess though, because the Vespucci brothers pull up outside and Guido points to the station and says, That's the one I've had my eye on. Hey, we're going to buy it? No, 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 just borrow it. We get more of Nozzle Nick's nauseating nonsense. So stay cool in the duel for fuel. You're with me, WGAZ, the gas station, giving you a better notion where to get the motion lotion. Give us a ring, will you? 553-WGAZ. We cut to today's issue of the Herald Examiner with a headline that reads, Duke Stuyvesant of Westar says no gas shortage. Matt picks it up and takes it inside where he reads the article sitting next to Sarah on his bed. Sarah recognizes the Stuyvesant brothers in a photo accompanying the article. There's a knock at the door, and someone speaking in Ed's voice gives a long series of fake names expecting to be let into the apartment. Who is it? Morning paper. It's okay, I got it. Flowers. Cadigram. Pizza. Sarah finally puts it together that it's her brother out there, and they sneak out. It's the police. Bruce Lee! <laughs> With his last fake name, Ed punches through the door into Matt's apartment, and we cut to a car skidding up to the operational West Star gas station. A man hops out of the car in all black with a black cowboy hat, black Lone Ranger mask, and a revolver in his black glove. When he puts the gun in Ira's face, Ira makes weird curly from the Three Stooges noises. <laughs> Apparently the Vespucci brothers released Ira after they showed him the pipe last night. I still have no idea why they brought him to their basement. The bandit begins filling his car. We see the Vespucci brothers pull up outside a dairy facility with a V painted on the sign. On the way in, they're hassled by a security guard who doesn't recognize them at first. You know me. Oh yeah. You're the godfather's nephews. The ones that bury animals. We prefer pet grief therapists. Or speak. We prefer pet grief therapists. Ah, bene. Grazie. They ask to borrow one of the milk tankers and claim that they have the godfather's approval. Back at the West Star station, when the bandit has finished filling his car, he gives Ira the cash because he didn't want to steal it. He just didn't want to wait in line. When he pulls away, someone asks, Who was that masked man? Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone ask, Who was that masked man? Oh, uh... The the Lone Ranger. (laughs) Oh my god! Oh, brain! Oh, my brain hurts. You're right. The legend of the Lone Ranger. so sorry. Do you remember who said it in that movie? The character or the actor? Either. Uh, was it Jason Robards as Ulysses S. Grant? It was. Who is that masked man? And do you guys recall the time before that that we heard a character say, who was that mask? Oh, no. Yeah. It was another very similar film to this one. 
It was Gorp. It was Gorp. Who is that masked man? <laughs> That's what this movie reminds me of. I know. Of. That's what uh. I told Jess. I was like halfway through it. I was like, it's basically Gorp all over again, but make it about gasoline instead of a camp. But it's it's literally just Gorp again. Yeah. It, uh, this one had slightly less screaming all the time. But also, I would say that that movie was much more focused. It was about camp and it was about people playing pranks on each other. Yeah, I guess Whereas there was this a like, storyline there. We're burying weird animals and we're stealing gasoline and we're dressing up as the Lone Ranger. What the hell is happening? Yeah. Compared to this, Gorp is actually very disciplined storytelling. Ira doesn't care who the bandit was because he got a silver dollar as a tip, a reference to the Lone Ranger silver mine. We cut to Ed and Sarah's home where the Stuyvesant brothers are trashing the place looking for Sarah's pictures. Wait, this isn't their home. This is Matt's home. <laughs> I don't know why they're checking Matt's apartment when we specifically saw them get Sarah's address earlier and they never went there, nor do we explain where they got Matt's address. They hide in the closet when Matt and Sarah enter. Matt notices his box of rectal thermometers is missing and he moves to check the closet because the door is ajar. When he pulls open the door, he plainly sees two men, the Stuyvesant brothers, hiding in his closet and one of them whispers, We just left. What does that even mean? Did he intend for Matt to hear those words? Did he think that Matt would hear the words and that his brain would accept that the two men he just found in his closet had left the apartment? I I don't know. This kind of zany movie just makes me tired because there's no explanation for why he would say that or how it could help them. Even if Matt believed it, it wouldn't it doesn't make any sense. Believe it or not, the scene actually gets worse from here. Matt tells Sarah that they should leave and call the police, and they should which is why that's actually just a diversion, and the actual plan is to pretend to leave to trick these two guys into coming out of the closet. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone slam a front door pretending to leave but actually staying inside the home? Uh, Endless love? That's right. <laughs> the Stuyvesant brothers come out of the closet and realize Matt and Sarah are still there, so they duck back in and take a few coats each off the rack and pretend they're here collecting dry cleaning. Matt tries to keep them from leaving and grabs one of their wallets, eventually tearing the man's pants completely off on his way out the door. As the Stuyvesant brothers take the spiral staircase down to the ground floor, they pass a young boy carrying a baseball bat and gloves going the opposite direction. In a terrible ADR voice, the child introduces himself as Larry Mondello and asks if they've seen the beef. Hi, I'm Larry Mondello. You guys seen the beef? A left field reference to Rusty Stevens' Larry Mondello character from the 50s sitcom Leave It to Beaver. It's not even really a joke. It's just a reference to another show, and it was clearly an afterthought that they came up in editorial where they improvised 75% of the jokes as ADR. I think they just watched it and they were like, that kid kind of looks like Larry Mondello, huh? Well, yeah. You should say he's Larry Mondello when they're walking past him. God. I'm just thinking about putting this movie together and they just were like, this scene's not funny. Right. Let's ADR some jokes. Exactly. Uh, the moment honestly comes across like the filmmakers pulling an MST3K on their own film. Hey, that looks like the kid from Leave it to Beaver. What was his name? Larry Mondello. Let's have him say he's Larry Mondello and he's looking for the beef. That will absolutely kill. <laughs> People love random references to shows from 20 years ago. I guess we do that a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love them. <laughs> yeah. We cut from here to Jane Beardsley driving a WREQ company car like a maniac. Her cameraman can be heard in ADR accusing her of trying to kill him and calling her a white devil again. Just like he did earlier in the film, but again. 
She swerves onto the West Star gas station property and rushes up to Ira with the camera rolling for an interview without prepping him at all. Ira flubs the first take, so she pulls him aside to explain that he'll need to do better. Ira offers to show off his impression of Curly. The cameraman likes it, at least. I think he's a very funny man. We cut back to the bopper and the chopper who talks about the bandit who filled up his car even though the guy paid for all the gas he took. He's mad at the people of Earth for using so much gas, and yet he's flying a fucking helicopter 12 hours a day over the same gas station. Matt and Sarah look at the developed photo, and it's just the Stuyvesant brothers standing beside a huge steel reservoir, but we can't see anyone else in the picture. We cut to Duke's office, where he talks to his latest Falcon friend. He's holding today's paper, where they've apparently already printed the photograph that Sarah took. Duke calls his sons into the office to lecture them for appearing in this photograph. What I'm gonna do now is gonna hurt me a lot more than it's gonna hurt you. But, uh, well, that's the way it goes, you know. He shoots both of his sons, and they collapse by his desk. After a moment, he asks if they're okay, and they both rise slowly, shell-shocked, and we learn that they've been shot with blanks, this time. One of them seems to have pissed himself in the process. This moment might have been a lot funnier if the whole movie hadn't been a cartoon so far. I don't care if he shoots his kids. Yeah. The whole I, plot has been wildly outlandish. <laughs> I think it would have been funnier had he had shot them. Yeah, I think it, it would have made more sense, because there's literally no reason not to kill them already. And then he calls the guys that bury animals. Yeah. To get it taken care of. Exactly. We cut to the prostitute Rhonda having sex with another gas station customer and her lips don't match her moaning, which seems like a mistake until we notice that she's hit play on a tape deck with a recording of her own sex sound so she doesn't have to waste energy pretending to enjoy it. When the customer finishes, he turns to face camera and we see that it's Nino Vespucci. Nino pays Rhonda and climbs out of her van to rejoin his brother. He's only a few steps away when he notices that smoke is billowing from the unzipped crotch of his pants. The joke here being that he had so much sex just now that his penis is literally on fire. He just zips the pants closed. Suddenly we hear Rush's limelight on the soundtrack, which seems like an expensive choice for the film. Or they're, they're Canadian though. Maybe this was early enough and they were like doing it to be friendly, gave it to the production. I don't know how they could afford this song. It's the only thing they spent money on I for guess. the whole movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, they do do a considerable amount of car stunts later. That's true. Nino drives the hearse away from the gas station, and Ira and his team set up cones to close for the day. Matt and Sarah pull up to the gas station and start talking to Ira, when suddenly, Sarah's brother Ed shows up on a motorcycle. He stupidly clotheslines himself with a gas pump, and when Ira tries to help him, Ed gets Ira in a headlock. Even though he should be able to see his sister from here, he assumes that Matt is currently raping her. He's probably violating her very private parts right now. Yeah? I could kill him with my mind! I could remove his neck! Why did they go to see Ira? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's going to be my answer to any questions you have moving forward. But feel free to ask them. <laughs> we cut back to the parking structure of the WREQ building, and Jane is dragging her cameraman to another company car. We cut back to Westar, where Ira gave Ed a joint to calm him down, but also never put away the pump that Ed clotheslined himself with. As Ed tries to light the joint, he stands in an expanding puddle of gasoline, and quickly his feet are on fire. He tries to run away and leaves a trail of gas, which causes the entire station to explode. He is tossed by the explosion through a window into a pool with a bunch of heavyset women swimming around. 
three fire trucks respond to the exploding gas station from three separate decades or maybe centuries yeah these three different completely different model trucks yeah well you know it's whatever the whatever uh, you can the get local place <laughs> had to loan out yeah ed struggles to escape the pool as the women claw all over him next ed moves through a gym doing karate poses to intimidate the women away from him outside even though the streets seem to be wide open jane is driving the station's car along the sidewalk smashing through trash cans as pedestrians dive out of her way suddenly jane takes the car off a wooden ramp barely clearing the line of fire trucks before crash landing across the intersection well and and this car does not the shot from underneath the ramp right the car clearly never makes it onto the ramp right it just completely gives way as the car hits it and then it cuts away to a different car going over and also when it lands you can see that it lands on the front tire so hard that it bends the car in like a 20 degree angle but then they cut to it like it's just driving fine after that the fire trucks arrive at rachel's reducing salon just as ed stumbles out the front door they turn their hoses on a series of small fires at the gas station outside the building some of the firefighters move inside to check for survivors and fall into the same pool ed did actually it seems like they're jumping into it on purpose one of the firefighters seems to be carrying out a marble statue, and I'm assuming the joke is that he thinks it's a person? Yeah. Like he throws a statue mm -hmm. over his shoulder? The firefighters carry all the overweight ladies out of the salon, while in the sky above, Nick the Nozzle slaps another 8-track into the deck of the bopper chopper. One of the firefighters is being carried out by the women. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I was like, I oh, okay, that that's like a little... Uh, Flipperoo. We cut to Ira and Jane's Japanese camera person waiting on a street corner when the Vespucci brothers pull up and yank Ira through the passenger side window into their car before driving away. Someone, presumably another station employee, pulls up in one of the station cars. I don't know if they just got the first one fixed after they crashed it off the ramp or if he just brought them a loaner car, but Jane and her cameraman climb in and drive away without this person who just drove them a station car. We clock wipe to the Vespucci pet mortuary. That night, they explain their plan to Ira. They've taken one of their company milk trucks and filled it with gasoline from the pipe under the building. They intend to start their own gas station and have Ira run the place since he does such a good job at the other gas station. I guess they're assuming that this pipe under the building will provide unlimited gas forever and they can make 100% profits in perpetuity. As they pull the milk truck away, we see Jane and her cameraman watching all this go down from their parking spot across the street. We cut back to the apartment of the MPs who have been selling the military base's gas. One of them arrives home and tosses a memo at the other that says the base is doing inspections tomorrow and they will surely be caught for their theft. They had to know this was going to happen eventually, though. Jane spots the milk truck parked beside another tanker truck in a seafood restaurant parking lot. The tanker truck pulls away just as another Vespucci milk truck arrives. Yeah. Jane seems to conclude that they're stealing milk and gas, even though the Vespucci's never got in the departing gas truck, and it didn't seem related to what they're doing at all. It turns out, it's a complete coincidence that another Vespucci tanker truck parked beside theirs. When they come back to the parking lot, they see a Vespucci milk truck parked to the left of another tanker truck, and they assume that theirs is still the one parked on the left. So they drive away in the wrong tanker truck, which is not full of the gasoline they think it is, but milk. We cut to the abandoned gas station where the Vespucci's have decided to set up shop. They're dumping the contents of their tanker truck into the reservoir of this gas station and somehow don't notice that they're filling it with actual milk and not gasoline, which seems impossible. Like I can smell it from a block away when a gas station is refilling. 
The same two MPs pull up and notice them filling the gas station from their milk truck and wonder why. I haven't mentioned this bit because the movie barely even commits to the joke, but these two soldier characters we've been following are one white guy and one black guy, and as a hilarious joke, the white guy delivers all of his lines in the style of a typical African-American stereotype. In this scene, the black guy driving the car tells the white guy to take the afro pick out of his hair and pay attention. They conclude that the truck is labeled milk as a decoy so that no one will hijack Stuyvesant's gas trucks. Jane and her cameraman are also watching this, and she assumes that the Vespucci's are just holding onto the gas in secret reservoirs for Stuyvesant so that he can get it back when he decides the shortage is over. Which is actually true, but that's there. this isn't a part of that. Yeah. We watch Ira continue to fill the gas station, not at gunpoint or anything, he's just cooperating with the Vespucci's now, and Nino lights up a cigarette. Guido and Ira point out how stupid that is, and Guido says, What happened? Your mother didn't have any children who lived? The weird thing here, though, is that Guido and Nino are siblings. So if you say, Your mother didn't have any children who lived to your brother, aren't you saying that you died too? Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Somehow, after the Vespucci's finish emptying their truck into this derelict gas station, the MPs manage to siphon it back out and fill their own vehicle with it, again, without noticing that it's milk and not gasoline. Back at the military base, they're about to refill the tanks when they accidentally splash some of the milk on themselves and finally notice what they're carrying. It's milk, you jive turkey! That's the white guy talking. The soldiers decide to dispose of the milk by spraying it into the local bay. Since they didn't take all of the milk from the station, they laugh about the motorists, who will certainly be disappointed to learn they filled their tanks with expired milk. Someone apparently notices the soldiers dumping the milk there, and Jane's editor calls her to inform her to get there on the double before the responsible party is gone. Somehow Jane catches up with the military vehicle on their way back to the base and throws on her lights and sirens. Why does a news station wagon need lights and sirens? And why do you have to obey them? And why haven't you been using them the whole time you've been driving on the sidewalk earlier? She swerves her car in front of the soldiers, and when they're forced to stop, she begins a live interview. I'm Jane Beardsley from WREQ. Well, hi, Mama. <laughs> the driver decides to play dumb with her, but also admits that what they dumped in the bay was milk, not gasoline, and she is welcome to check. We cut to the godfather Don Vespucci's office, where he fills a glass from a milk carton, but the carton is actually full of gasoline. At first he thinks he's being pranked, but his men insist that one of the tankers was somehow full of gasoline. Up in the bopper chopper, Nozzle Nick takes a call from Ira. He shares with the bopper chopper that he is helping to open a new gas station across town from the one we've seen. Nick the Nozzle recommends people check it out. We cut to a live broadcast of WREQ News. The anchorman throws it to Jane Beardsley, who is expected to discuss a flower show, but hijacks the broadcast to announce all the conspiracies that she has witnessed in the last 48 hours. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a woman go off script on live television? The Howling? Yes. Did you pass this material? She's not ready for the prompter. And the time before that? Oh. The Incredible Shrinking Woman? No. It was a slasher or a horror film. Oh. Shoot. It's the one where he's in the neighboring apartment building, right? Right. Oh, um... Eyes of a Stranger. Eyes of a Stranger is yeah. correct. It pulled you guys that one got out. it. <laughs> nice work. And they are expecting a break very shortly. We'll be right back. Unfortunately, Roger, it's too late for one more victim. Uh-oh. There she goes again. Well, I'm sure the police are doing everything they can. Her co-anchor and the people in the control room don't know what to do about the broadcast. They let her make a lot of dubious legal claims live on the air without cutting her microphone or flipping the signal to a test pattern. A phone rings in the booth, and we cut to Matt and Sarah 
making out on his Murphy bed again. A phone rings on Don Vespucci's desk, and he seems to be getting a call about the Vespucci tanker truck that was spotted dumping milk into a local gas station. Weirdly, though, Vespucci is acting like someone called him, and we cut back to the men in the booth who answered a ringing phone, implying that someone also called them. So we're seeing these two unrelated phone calls edited together like these people called each other. Right. But they're both answering a ringing phone. A spot that was the legal department. Pull the plug on her. Yeah, obviously. Why do they even have people in the booth if you don't know you're supposed to cut them off when they start spouting unsupported conspiracy theories about local businesses without evidence? The bopper chopper is floating over the new gas station run by Ira when another call comes in. It's Ed on the line looking for his sister. The description he gives is uncomfortable to say the least. I see my sister. She's blonde, about 5'8", great uh, legs, perfect teeth. Well, if that's the truth, I'll keep my eye out for her. Oh, yeah? Well, listen, Motormouth, you come near my sister, I'll rip your face off. I'll realign your ribs, okay? Wow! We cut back to the news station where Jane is being lectured for going off script and opening them up to potential lawsuits. Her boss says the only reason he's not firing her is because he's nice. But he has his chin tucked weirdly against his chest when he says the line, and his delivery reminds me of, like, Uncle Fester or Vincent D'Onofrio in the Edgar suit. Yeah. The only reason I'm not firing you is because I'm a hell of a guy. I would love to listen in for that part of the writing session, though. Wait, wouldn't she be immediately fired for this? Maybe, maybe her boss is nice or something. Perfect. <laughs> we'll just have him say that. Just so people know. <laughs> Jane's boss says she can continue reporting the news, but she's officially off the case of the missing gas and missing milk. Like she's a detective or something. It's like, no, uh, you can't order me off the case of something because I'm not on a case because I'm not a detective. Jane spells out the whole scheme one step at a time for her boss and doesn't realize how fucking crazy she sounds. Listen, Fred. The army buys milk from Leo Vespucci. Then the army dumps the milk. That way they can buy more milk. That way they can drive up the cost of gas and milk. That doesn't make sense. No. We cut to a hot tub somewhere with Matt, Sarah, Jane, and the cameraman all sitting in the water. Sarah tells Jane about the big tanks at the edge of town and that Stuyvesant is hiding more gasoline there. Jane mentions that the tanks have been empty for 20 years. They're storing gas in those tanks. How did Sarah reach out to Jane to communicate this information? And how did she know that they were empty? If they've been empty for 20 years, why would she conclude that there's stuff in them now? Right. Why are they meeting in a hot tub? Jane instructs Matt to collect Fenway from the Department of Energy. Jane will find Ira, and they will all convene at the tanks. We cut back to Don Vespucci's office, where he lectures the security guard that let the nephews take the tanker truck. We cut directly to a snake funeral. The clients are Stefan and Stephanie's Super Serpents, a traveling snake show. Nino eulogizes Slinky the Snake, which he is for some reason holding in his arms instead of placing in the 10-foot-long, 1-foot-thick casket they've prepared for the funeral. Out of nowhere, a pair of Uncle Vespucci's goons kick in the door to the room carrying a dead fish. It's from your Uncle Leo, bitch. I had to back this up a few times because I was sure he must have said fish or something. <laughs> I misheard him. But nope, he clearly says bitch. I was like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> Nino and Guido throw Slinky at the henchmen and then use the coffin to fend them off while they sneak outside. Just before leaving, they slap the coffin shut on all the henchmen's fingers. Guido has to explain to Nino on their way out that a dead fish means that their uncle is planning to have them killed for borrowing a truck and filling it with gasoline. <laughs> Seems like overkill. 
The Vespucci brothers skid away in their own car, but are quickly pursued by the henchmen driving Don Vespucci, who for some reason agreed to come on this trip but waited in the car. Right. We cut to the Department of Energy, where Matt and Sarah basically kidnap Fenway to bring to the gas tanks. A mole in the Energy Department office, in the form of Fenway's secretary, makes a quick call to Stuyvesant to let him know what's happening. We cut to Stuyvesant's house, where Duke is shoving his kids in the car to try and beat everyone to the gas tanks. Weirdly, as we watch the Vespucci brothers driving to the tanks, we can see presumably crew members sitting on the back of the car and their heads are peeking up over the top of the vehicle, even though when we get exterior shots of the car, there's nobody else riding it. Yep. It's possible this is a full-frame scan of something that was supposed to be matted to 185 or something, so we're seeing parts of the picture that wouldn't ordinarily be in the final cut, but I haven't seen any boom mics, so I would guess that that's not the case. We cut back to the gas line where the sheik gets out of the van with the prostitute, Rhonda, and hands her a fat roll of cash. Unfortunately, he quickly notices that his Cadillac has been stolen. We cut to the greaser kid who stole the sheik's car as he picks up a cute girl walking down the street. The Vespucci brothers park across the street from the new gas station, and Guido slaps Nino around for mispronouncing the phrase newsbroad. Damn newsbroad wasn't there. Newsbroad? Newsbroad. Newsbroad? Ah! Newsbroad. Yeah. <laughs> My next note says, We cut to Hollis putting the last of the tank, <laughs> but it's not Hollis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We cut to Ira putting the last of the tank into a station wagon and announcing that it's time to switch tanks. As far as I know, they only stole one tank worth of milk, so I don't know what he's talking about switching to, or how nobody noticed that the cars don't drive when they leave this gas station. We cut to Ed riding a motorcycle toward the gas station when his engine suddenly cuts out. The Lone Ranger's car, presumably named Tornado, skids up to the curb across the street, this time with a Tonto driving, and the Ranger loads his gun. He pulls up to the gas station just as Ed crashes the motorcycle and falls face down on the concrete. This time, the Lone Ranger fires his weapon once and spooks everybody, but when he grabs a hold of the gas pump, he just starts spraying milk all over Ira and the jig is up. We get about 18 shots in a row that are each five frames long centered on a different character, and I'm done summarizing what happens shot for shot. <laughs> Ed tries to fight the Lone Ranger and punches a cop, giving the Lone Ranger time to escape. The cops arrest Ed. Jane does a live report on the gas station that's selling people magical milk that for some reason still propels their cars forward off the lot. It is expired milk. <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't the cars be dead instantly, though, as soon as you're filling them with milk and it's well, mixing with the gasoline in your tank? Well, I guess it would, like, I guess it would depend if uh, milk and gasoline would even mix. If there's still gasoline in the tank, then and the milk would just floating on the top level. Wouldn't the gasoline float on the top? I don't know. I think milk would float on top of gasoline. I don't know. Oh, man. I have to look this up. Either way, I still feel like these cars are running on empty when they pull into the gas station in the first place. They should be dead immediately or like half a mm -hmm. block later, and people should already be coming up and complaining about it. See, they've already sold an entire tank of this gas, and not a single person has come back to say their car broke down. Right, right. Who cares if it's milk or gas, though? They already sold it. They win. Never said it was gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just assumed that? Jane demands answers from Ira, who refers her to Moo Juice Vespucci, a local nickname for the Don. For some reason, the Vespucci brothers decide it's time to kidnap Ira again. Now, Duke Stuyvesant and his sons almost crash into the gas station, but swerve into a U-turn to drive away. 
Apparently, one of the brothers thought that the thermometer was the gas gauge and was coming here to buy gas until Duke pointed out that they don't need to stop for fuel. Also, the place that they're going is a huge reservoir of gasoline. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to make an assumption that the milk would sink to the bottom of the tank. All right. Because gas is lighter than water, less dense than water. Yeah. And milk is more dense than water. I wonder if the expiration makes a difference or not. But the the point being that it, milk is mostly water anyway. Sure. So it's yeah. denser than gasoline. Mm-hmm. And the other parts that aren't water are milk solids. So these cars should be fucked up very quickly. Yes. Yes. At the same time, the Sheik sees his stolen car pull away. Sarah and her cameraman throw Ira into the backseat of their station wagon and follow Stuyvesant. The cop arresting Ed ties his hands up with a gas pump and then pushes a bucket down over his head instead of arresting him like police do. The Sheik drags the cop away to pursue the car thief that took his Cadillac. When the Vespucci brothers see their uncle Leo with another dead fish, they're terrified. The cop that just tied up Ed somehow crashes his motorcycle and lands on top of the Vespucci brothers' car. When they back away from the dawn, they throw the cop off of their car and then hit him a second time, backing up again. The same cop decides to steal Ed's motorcycle to follow the Vespucci cars. Ed is running around still attached to the hose from the gas tank with a bucket over his head. When a car runs over the hose, Ed falls and the bucket is launched off of his head. He runs to a nearby tow truck to steal it, and the Sheik steals the prostitute's van. Just as he pulls away, a customer of Rhonda's falls out of the back of the van and runs back to his car. You got my cookies! What about my money? Did hookers not charge up front in the 80s? Was it all on the honor system still? <laughs> what is going on? Anyway, the cars now involved in the chase are Don Vespucci, the brothers Vespucci, Duke Stuyvesant, reporter team with Ira, cop on Ed's motorcycle, the Sheik in Rhonda's prostitution van, also presumably Matt and Sarah are driving Fenway around, but we never saw them get into a car. Oh yeah, and we have the teenager and the Sheik's stolen Cadillac with his girlfriend. Oh yeah, and Ed in a stolen Westar tow truck from the gas station. So nine cars we're keeping track of. Why? So far anyway. Oh my god. Then we cut to a tenth car. The two MPs from the base are pulling over to have lunch when they see everyone fly by and decide to join the chase. This time, the white soldier is eating watermelon in the passenger seat because this movie's fucking stupid. (laughs) Everything about these characters is awful. We cut to Matt, Sarah, and Fenway apparently lost on their way to the tanks where everyone is intended to meet. We cut to an old man slowly crossing the street and every car in the chase blasts past him, narrowly missing him. Somehow, in the chase, another innocent civilian vehicle is launched off a ramp and seems to fly half a block down the street before smashing down on top of several other cars. Lots more crashes. Ed, in a tow truck, blasts through a chain-link fence to cross a field and then pushes a car across an intersection, blocking the path of the MP's vehicle, which crashes into it. Don Vespucci seems to lose the trail of his nephews and asks Ahari Krishna for info. When the man tries to sell him on their religion instead, the Don threatens to kill him. And for just a small donation, uh, you can read Krishna's words. How'd you like to see Lord Krishna's face, huh? He went that way. Jane plows the station car through a farmer's market. The cop has to drop Ed's motorcycle on its side and slide under an 18-wheeler crossing an intersection. For some reason, he's making Ira's curly noises the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> to make the movie extra funny, we get a bit with these two characters riding 20-foot-tall unicycles in the middle of the road, and all the cars have to swerve around them. The soldier's vehicle runs over the back of a car, and the driver slaps the hood frustrated because he just stole this car, and it's already destroyed. The cop who stole Ed's bike and totaled it now steals a minibike from a child. One at a time, we see all the cars in this chase come flying over a really steep hilltop, and most of them lose at least a hubcap, a few of them seem to lose a tire, or a full axle. The biker cop is still making ridiculous curly sounds for no fucking reason. I don't understand. He drives a motorcycle for a living, but he doesn't seem to know how to use any of them. He's not even encountering any especially confusing obstacles. He just can't make left and right turns. Every time he does anything, he ruins a motorcycle. Up in the sky, Nick the Nozzle is finally losing his patience with the people of this film, and so am I. I've had it. I'm fed up with you, Earthman. The Nozzle has had it with you right up to the bopper chopper. We cut to an active police standoff with a group of gangsters led by a man named Dutch. Now, we haven't met any of these people before, right. and we haven't hinted that this situation is going on alongside the chase, but it is now. Dutch fires on the police, and Dutch's henchmen sneak away to turn themselves in, not wanting to be confused for the man shooting at police. Dutch continues firing on the cops, when suddenly, a line of police cars blast through the front doors of Bert's auto body as the chase moves through this alley. Every single car gets a chance to drive through the facade of the run-over cardboard sign, that they knocked down on their way into this alley. Yeah, it's it's clearly like meant to look like it's a garage, right? But it's just a a, a facade. A, it's just a facade over an actual alleyway. Yeah, and it's made out of paper, and all these cars are just blasting through it. And then we realize that this is like a weirdly meta scene because it is a facade. It's supposed to be a facade because they're shooting a police standoff scene for a film within this film. The stage manager is furious that no one prevented these cars from blasting through their set deck, but the director is very happy with the shot and informs the cameraman that this is a circle take. The Stuyvesant car rolls the reporters off the road, but after a full flip, the car lands back on its wheels and Jane continues driving. Do you think the, the set thing was an afterthought? They're like, oh, it looks so bad when those things drive through the set. Let's just pretend it's actually a set yeah. and add some dialogue. Let's actually be in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Matt and Sarah finally get Fenway to the base of the incriminating tanks. Matt points out that they can't be empty because they seem to be leaking gas. Fenway smells the sample himself, despite already seeming intoxicated because he can barely walk for some reason. Did they drug this guy and I missed it? I, I guess it's just supposed to be the fumes? Because yeah. he seems drunk the second he's getting out of the car. He's like stumbling over toward the tanks, but it's not affecting anybody else. I'm not sure if they implied that they brought, like, a syringe to steal this guy from the Department of Energy, or they, like... Well, he, he was kind of goofy when they grabbed him. Yeah, he was. Like, and so, I don't was know... Was he drinking at his desk when I missed it? <laughs> He's just a day drinker. Yeah. As he hallucinates, a bunch of Japanese Elvis Presleys show up, because that bus is still in town. Duke and his boys arrive, followed quickly by the eight other cars in this chase. Jane's cameraman gets out his camera, and the brothers are quickly trying to wrestle the camera away. Don Vespucci shows up and steps out of his car holding a fish, and the camera tilts down to reveal another 30 fish on the floor of the car. In case he needs spares, I guess. Jane takes the film camera herself to do the report. The Vespucci brothers panic when their uncle Leo appears outside the car, nodding and smiling, holding a fish. Nino decides to use their last moments alive to cross something off his bucket list. Oh, Guido, I love you like a brother. I am your brother. Yeah, that's right. Quiddo, there's something I've always wanted to do. Yeah, what's that? Oh, 
Now Guido's voice is messed up, and the brothers continue slapping each other back and forth for like 30 seconds. The motorcycle cop who crashed three motorcycles unassisted on the way here whips out his gun and shoots himself in the foot to get everyone's attention. The train is arriving, and the MPs pull up just in time to cross the tracks in front of it. Sarah tells the police officer about Duke's whole plot, and he rushes up to defend himself. He stands on the hood of a car and claims that his sons actually planned the whole scheme, and he only found out today. Finally, Ed arrives on the scene and drives the tow truck off a ramp and through a section of the train loaded with cardboard boxes. This is actually a pretty insane stunt. Yeah. Because the train is moving, mm -hmm. and he's literally driving it over the train, knocking stuff off of the train. Yeah. But it's just empty cardboard boxes like wrapped in plastic, basically. Yeah, but it's still more sophisticated than I would have thought this movie would have yeah, done. Yeah, for sure. Competent stunt work, if nothing else. After he lands, he continues driving straight through the crowd and into the side of the giant gas tank because his brakes are out. He could obviously still steer around it, but he doesn't do that because yeah. it's funnier to crash into the thing. Yeah, because if it were full of gas, that'd be a huge fireball and right. be green. And you would die first. They would all die for sure, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. They're all right there. Yeah. They're at ground zero. Actually, I think it would be more dangerous that it's empty, wouldn't it? Because, oh, because it's like papers? just fumes everywhere. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's obvious now that the tanks are not full of gas, and Fenway explains that these tanks haven't been maintained, so all the gas within has seeped into the ground. Ed asks for the crowd to call him a tow truck, and all the Japanese Elvises start calling him a tow truck. Somebody call me a tow truck. Nick Denaz says his goodbye in the sky, and Duke has a meltdown because all of his stored gas is just gone. So now there really is a gas crisis? Right, I guess, yeah. <laughs> because these three tanks of gas are just all the gas in the whole world? I guess it's just this one tiny neighborhood that yeah. we're talking about, where there were only two gas stations previously, but one closed. And there isn't a worldwide market for gasoline that could be brought in? I don't, I don't know why they can't <laughs> drive to the next town and get right? gas. Yeah. We float around the chaos for a while until the inevitable freeze frame and the credits roll. And then I think we get an original song that's about gas. Unless this is a song people know, but uh, this is a song about gas over the credits. And that's the end. So that's gas, everybody. Oi. Uh, super painful. Really, really frustrating. Just exhausting to watch. Yeah. Um, but even more so to describe beat for beat because there's just so much to keep track of. So many conflicting storylines. That doesn't matter at all. No, none of it matters. It's... It's just a mess. I, I can't even imagine editing this film because yeah. there's so many cuts. There's so many shots. Just, just There's 14 characters in every scene, like yeah. named characters with lines in every scene. I, 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 yeah. I couldn't figure out, you know, you, you look at it like a movie with a huge cast, something like it's a mad, 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 mad world. Yeah. But I can, I can immediately tell what's going on right but there's also movie. rarely more than three or four of them in a scene at a time right right this one has to have like as many of the characters on set and they're in the scene as possible yeah and and it's definitely a, a quantity not quality situation where they're just thinking put more jokes in the scene we're going to reshoot this and we're going to get more jokes into it they're on set just coming up with stuff on the fly and telling the editor that every punchline they came up with had to be in the final cut and you get this horrible mess. There's no main character. No. There's no... I mean, I think Matt is supposed to be the main character, but he's barely focused on in this yeah, movie. Yeah, if, if anyone's the main character, it's the Vespucci brothers. 
Or Ira. Yeah. <laughs> Ira, the true hero of the yeah. film. <laughs> it's just because I like Keith Knight, but <laughs> I want him to be the main character. But uh, yeah, it's it's just really exhausting. I'm sure you're tired just from hearing me talk about it. I know I am. Yeah. But that's most movies. <laughs> anyway, it's definitely a <laughs> thumbs up for sure, right? Guys. Big thumbs down. Yeah, this oh, is yeah. this definitely would make a terrific double feature with Gorp, I would say. It's uh, a terrific double feature that I will never go to. If you ever accidentally swipe right on somebody and you're like, let's watch two movies in a row, Gorp and Gas, <laughs> and then they'll just, they're out of your life. You don't have to worry about that person anymore. So, well, yeah. I was say, Jesse's still here. <laughs> That's true. I did make her watch both of them. I spaced them out real good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what are we thinking letterboxed, guys? How many movies are there right now? 98? 98. All right. So I have this at 98 out of 98. <laughs> I also have it at 98 out of 98. Wow. Um, I have it at 96. Oh, Whoa. wow. You What's love above this, this movie, Richard. <laughs> oh my Why God. do you love it so I'm gonna much? Get oh you guys a, I'm going to get you guys a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> only because I seem to be missing two movies from my list. Yeah. Uh, the only two movies that are below gas, uh, bottom of my list is still Scream. Um, but then Hardly Working is below gas because Hardly okay. Working, everything about that movie angers me. Yeah. This mm. movie angers me, but also just confuses me. What's right above gas? Oh, that's a great question. Image of the Beast. Image of the Beast is above it. Okay. Yeah, well, because good. I'd Image much of the rather Beast watch... is great. I would watch that right <laughs> yeah, now. I mean, oh my God. I'll, uh, please, let's watch Image of the Beast. <laughs> God, I need a palate <laughs> cleanser after <laughs> gas. Maybe I didn't program this year to be hard enough if you're saying, please, let's watch Image of the Beast. <laughs> and it's 97 on your list, or 90, 95 on your list. I'm yeah. I'm I'm wondering if anything will will go below it for the year, or if I'll end the year the same way I ended last year with a Donald Sutherland movie at the bottom oh my of my gosh, list. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking because I always think it's such a shame that uh, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland did all this trash in the early '80s when they were like top of their game for all through the 70s and it's like they were mashed together they're so fucking funny donald yeah. sutherland and elliot gould and both of them led the bottom of our lists last year because i had elliot gould in falling in love again yeah it's like why are these guys doing the, i mean they're doing it for money i guess yeah but it's just like who is taking advantage of you and taking all of the money that you should have been making on these movies yeah, I mean, for me, you know, Image of the Beast and Hardly Working are are and Scream. They're up several slots from this. Right above this is Private Lessons for me. Oh, okay. And, yeah, Private uh, Lessons is close. And Secondhand Hearts is in '96. So. See, I have just a gigolo in '97. I d- that does that's not right belong anywhere near this. I belong. It belongs right next to it. No. I, I, I actually thought about putting this above Just a Gigolo. What? Because Just a Gigolo just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, but neither does this. This, Just a Gigolo makes far more sense than this garbage. The reason I'm more offended by Just a Gigolo is because it has David Bowie and it has all these like... but at least I can sit and watch David Bowie. Yeah, but what annoys me is that they got all these... They have the pieces for a decent film and then they made Just a Gigolo, which doesn't even make any sense. Like no one even read it before they started shooting. Anyway, gas is the worst. (laughs) Yes. Or close to, if you're Richard. Yeah, close to the worst. Our director here was Les Rose. He also directed Hog Wild, another wacky Canadian comedy, which gets a minisode later this season and stars almost the entire cast of My Bloody Valentine, some of whom are also in this. The story came from Susan Scranton, 
whose only other credit is being a PA on 1978's Skateboard. That's what that movie was called, Skateboard. Sorry, the the person who wrote this movie. The story. Oh, okay. So the person who wrote this story, which I don't think there is one. Correct. The only other credit they have is as a PA on a film. A PA on Skateboard. On Skateboard. The other story credit and writing credit went to Dick Wolf, creator of Law and & Order, and screenwriter of Skateboard. <laughs> okay. Are they married? He was also married at the okay. time to Susan Scranton, <laughs> okay. with whom he shares his story credit. Got it. The music is from Paul Zaza. I'm just, I'm just literally thinking of these two, just like hanging out at night and being like, you know, it'd make a great movie. Oh my God, we no, need to I, write this. I think it's simpler than that. I think it was literally, she was just like, fucking gas prices, am I right? And he's like, hey, do you want a story credit? <laughs> The music here was from Paul Zaza, who also scored Hogwild, Prom Night, Kidnapping of the President, and My Bloody Valentine. So much Canadian stuff. Later, he scores Curtains, Christmas Story, and Meatballs 3. I think Hollis comes back for Meatballs 3. Cinematographer Rene Verzier, also DP'd Death Ship last season and 1980's Hogwild. Editor Patrick Dodd, previously cut Shivers for Cronenberg. This is just Canada, 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 Canada. Susan Onspock was Jane Beardsley. She gets top credit somehow. We saw her last year as Catherine Von Oost, Jack Nicholson's second girlfriend in Five Easy Pieces, and as Elliot Gould's girlfriend in Devil and Max Devlin earlier this season. Howie Mandel was Matt Lloyd. He's a comedian and game show host. He's also Maurice the Monster in Little Monsters, Bobby Generic on Bobby's World, and the voice of Gizmo in Gremlins. Generic. Isn't yeah. it pronounced no, generic no, that's, on the show? that's a running joke, yeah. is that everyone always says gen- generic. <laughs> yeah, but it's generic. Sterling Hayden played Duke Stuyvesant. He was Roger Wade in The Long Goodbye, General Jack T. Ripper in Dr. Strangelove, and Captain McCluskey in The Godfather. We saw him last year as Tinsworthy, the Colonel sanders CEO from 9 to 5. Helen Shaver played Rhonda. She was Carolyn in The Amityville Horror and Mama Longneck in The Land Before Time. She also appears to work fairly regularly directing Big Deal Network television episodes. A bunch of Outer Limits, Dead Like Me, Jericho, Castle, Law and Order, Orphan Black, Westworld, Lovecraft Country, and Vikings. And she appears to currently be attached as the director of the Quantum Leap sequel series pilot. That's the prostitute in this movie. (laughs) Well, I always know her from Tremors 2. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. She's like the geologist that's working with Fred Ward is obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I think she's also uh, Feruza Balk's mom in The Craft. Oh, is she? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Feruza Balk's mom. All right, cool. Sandy Curry played Sarah Marshall. She's credited as Sarah Marshall. She says her name Sarah Marshall in the movie, but for some reason she put Sarah Mitchell on her camera, maybe as a goof. She plays Mitchie in Terror Train. She's back as Tara DeMilo or Tara DeMio in Curtains in 83. Peter Aykroyd played Ed Marshall. He is the brother of Dan Aykroyd. This was his first feature film appearance. He reunites with Howie Mandel for 1983's The Funny Farm. He wrote for SNL for a couple seasons and has a story credit on Nothing But Trouble. Most of his acting appearances are beside his brother Dan in Dr. Detroit, Nothing Lasts Forever, Dragnet, Nothing But Trouble, and Coneheads. He also provides the voice of Elwood for the Blues Brothers animated series. Keith Knight played Ira. He was Hollis in My Bloody Valentine. He's back as Vern Jones in our Hogwild minisode later this season. He later returns as Barnyard in Class of 1984. Alf Humphreys was Lou Picard. That was the white MP character. He's Howard in My Bloody Valentine, Lester in First Blood, and William Drake in X2, X-Men United. 
We've also seen him in Improper Channels and his first feature film appearance in Virus Day of Resurrection. Michael Hogan played Guido Vespucci. We've seen him so far in Klondike Fever, but he's also best known for his portrayal of Saul Tai on Battlestar Galactica, Adama's second-in-command. Since then, he's done a bunch of voices in video games. He was on the TV adaptations of Fargo, 12 Monkeys, and Teen Wolf, and most recently, he was the Air Force Chief of Staff in Sonic the Hedgehog. Hopefully he's coming back for the next one. Paul Kelman played Nino Vespucci. He was TJ in My Bloody Valentine. Donald Sutherland was Nick the Nas. He fully admitted in a New York Times interview that he did this movie because he was broke and he hated it. We just had him last week in Eye of the Needle. We've seen him so far in MASH for the Patreon listeners and Nothing Personal and Ordinary People last season. He is the father of Kiefer Sutherland. Harvey Chow played Lee Kwan. He's a Chinese translator in Police Academy 4 and a Japanese salesman in Videodrome. Vincent Marino played Uncle Leo. He was the cook in Billy Madison and Bodega Man and Half-Baked. I think that's the guy who tells them to buy their candies when Dave Chappelle's buying the giant yeah. Abba Zabba. You my only friend. <laughs> Carl Marat played Bobby. He was Steve in Pickup Summer and Dave in My Bloody Valentine. Walter Massey played Major Bright. He appeared in the Bill Paxton-directed The Greatest Game Ever Played as President Taft. Really? Taft? Jeff Diamond plays Gasoline Bandit. Coincidentally, he also played a fake Zorro in an early 90s Zorro adventure series. Steve Michaels played Rhonda's first customer. He was the brakeman in Terror Train last season. Charles Biddles Jr. was Black Car Thief. He's Porter in Terror Train last season. Walker Boone played gangster number one, Dutch. That's the guy shooting at the cops. He was the voice of Mario on the adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3, another animated series after the Lou Albano series. Yeah. Andre St. John played Unicycle Driver. He's credited as Unicycle Driver. <laughs> he was a parade stilt walker in the 1998 Barney the Dinosaur movie. Barbara Goodson played voiceover talent. She was a voice in Motel Hell, where we also mentioned that she is the voice of Rita Repulsa on yeah. the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. She's Red on Fraggle Rock and Kiki's Mother in Kiki's Delivery Service. For some reason, Charles Biddle Jr. is credited twice. Unless there's two Charles Biddle Juniors in this movie. But there's one that's credited as Black Car Thief, and then there's one on IMDb listed as uncredited as Car Thief. But uh, the second Charles Biddle Jr. actually goes to a different page, and it says he's the train conductor from, from Terror Train, and it says that he has a vague singing credit in The Lion King, but no specific song is listed. Sam Stone played a cabbie in this. He was a security guard in Scanners and another cabbie in Police Academy 3, but those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for gas. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tarzan the Ape Man which IMDb describes like so. While on an African expedition with her father, Jane Parker meets Tarzan, and the two become fascinated by each other. We leave you now with a trailer for Tarzan the Ape Man. What was that? That, I believe, my dear, is Tarzan. MGM presents... Bo Derek, Richard Harris, and Miles O'Keefe in Tarzan, the Ape Man. 
It's a great white ape, supposedly 10 feet tall. A great white man, supposedly 100 feet tall. Any expedition on this continent is no place for a woman. I'm going with you. You're my wife, yet you're dead. You're my daughter, and yet I can't see you. Do you know what he wants? What this ape wants? Oh, Mother of God, stop, please! This ape wants you. He's not an ape. He is an ape. He lives like an ape. He kills like an ape. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to blow a hole in this ape, stuff him, and hang him on the wall of my club. You're not going to touch him. Because he's a man. Oh, I tell you, I'm going to have this ape's head as my trophy. I'm still a virgin. Now I don't know whether that's good or bad. What are you? You'd have to be, wouldn't you? It's a strange problem. Girls back home can see me now. The most exotic woman of our time in the most erotic adventure of all time. Tarzan, the ape man.